Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sunbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. You'll recall that last week we talked about some of the more interesting music-related things that happened in the early 80s, 1981 to be specific, like the launch of MTV and how it changed the world, or Ozzy biting the heads off of doves in a meeting with record executives, and some other stuff. But there were some other monumental things that happened in 1981 that we didn't get to, and I want to talk about one of those things this week. So, without any further ado, here we go. Five years earlier, in 1975, Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Neil Peart did something really interesting. Previous to that year, they had released a number of records, their self-titled debut, Fly By Night, and Caress of Steel which was considered to be the album that would break them, but it didn't. And while Rush was touring that record, people, including Rush themselves, were calling the tour the Down the Tubes tour because it was possible that it was going to be their last one. So with their next record being their last chance, Mercury, the record label, strongly recommended that Rush release a commercial radio-friendly record to salvage their musical career. And what did they do? They released 2112, which contained a 20-minute long science fiction song that takes up the entire first side of the record. And what happens? It's a massive success, the first platinum album for the band. But what's most important about this is that 2112 was like the line in the sand that separated Rush's beginnings from what they would go on to do in becoming the rock legends that we know them to be today. And five years later, in 1981, they would achieve the pinnacle of that success with their most popular record ever, Moving Pictures. By this time, Rush had released three more records after 2112 had afforded them a new lease on life, there was a Farewell to Kings in 1977, Hemispheres the next year, and then Permanent Waves in 1980. With the confidence they gained from the success of 2112, the band's progressive leanings became more and more defined. They wanted their music to be more complex than all the other stuff that was out there at the time. So they added all sorts of new instrumentation to their musical arsenal. Lee brought bass pedal synthesizers. Lifeson started using different types of guitars, classical guitars, 12 strings, and Neil Peart added all sorts of new percussive elements. He added a gong, chimes, wood blocks, timpani, you name it. Permanent Waves conceded a little to the more popular tastes of the day, featuring more synth and shorter compositions with reggae and new wave flavors, songs like Spirit of the Radio a song Peart wrote after listening to Toronto radio station CFNY while driving home from the studio every day. Peart was shifting away from science fiction lyrical themes during this period in favor of lyrics that examined and shed some light on the more social and emotional elements of the human condition. And their hit Free Will was a great example of that. As such, Permanent Waves really set the stage for moving pictures which would be released in February 1981. 
After Rush wrapped their almost year-long tour supporting Permanent Waves in 1980, they agreed to start work on a new studio record. But this was not the original plan for the band at the time. Originally, they had planned to release a second live record that would be made from recordings from the tour that they had just been on. But over the course of the tour, they had also developed little bits and pieces of songs during sound checks, and they were excited to try those ideas out in the recording studio. Neil Peart was reportedly the member of the band who was the most eager to change direction and record another studio album, with Lee and Lifeson coming around to the idea later on. There was a two-year plan in place for the band that had been arranged by their manager and the record company, but after all three members proposed their idea, the schedule was scuttled in favor of actually going ahead and doing a new studio recording. During a recording session with fellow Canadian musicians Max Webster at Phase One Studios to record a track called Battle Scar for Webster's next record, Universal Juveniles, in July 1980, Max Webster lyricist Pai Dubois offered some lyrics he had been working on to Rush because he thought that they would be a better fit with them than they would with Max Webster. And those lyrics would be reworked slightly by Peart and developed into Moving Pictures' lead-off track, Tom Sawyer. Before Tom Sawyer was actually finished, Rush formally holed themselves up in a remote location in Ontario to work on the rest of the material that they had gathered. The Camera Eye, Red Barchetta, YYZ, and Limelight being some of the first songs that they developed. After the initial framework for the songs was in place, Rush went back to Phase One Studios with producer Terry Brown to do some rough demos of the songs. During that time, both Tom Sawyer and Limelight came together pretty quickly, and the band added them to their setlist of the short upcoming tour before proper recording sessions would start later in the year. Those sessions began in October of 1980 with fully fleshed out songs at a place called Le Studio in Quebec, Canada. The studio was equipped with a new 48-track digital soundboard, causing a few delays based on the fact that the band wasn't familiar with the new digital technology. There were also a few equipment problems that slowed the band's progress down somewhat. While they were recording, the band was very particular about the sound quality of the recordings during the sessions, and they did some unique things to preserve that quality. When sections of songs were finished, they applied those sections to a separate reel of tape and then placed the original recording in storage to avoid its quality being degraded by repeated playback. Rush also experimented with new recording technology, like boundary microphones, microphones that only pick up direct sounds and no reverberated signals, preventing what's called bleed, which is when bands record songs live or together at the same time, instead of instrument by instrument or track by track. A pressure zone boundary microphone was taped to Peart's chest as he played, and they used it to pick up the ambient audio of the studio room for the final mixes. And if you watch the video for Vital Signs from Moving Pictures, you can actually see Peart wearing that microphone while he's playing. Now, as expected with Rush, the intricacies in laying down tracks was considerable, 
and time was taken to ensure every detail was just so. But that's not to say that the band wasn't efficient during the sessions. They recorded Red Barchetta in the first take. Piet was inspired to write the lyrics to that song by a story that he read in an American car magazine. The story was called A Nice Morning Drive. When Getty Lee talks about the song, he describes the lyrics as being slightly Orwellian because it's about a guy who takes his car out for a drive and deliberately exceeds the speed limits of the area and is promptly chased by police. The song is called Red Barchetta because of the Ferrari 166mm Barchetta that Peart had in mind when envisioning this drive, not the original MGB Roadster featured in the actual story. Decades later, Peart would meet the author of that short story. His name was Richard Foster. And their subsequent chat about cars, BMW, motorcycles, was documented in an article called The Drummer, The Private Eye, and Me in 2007. The song Limelight contains two lyrical winks, as it were. The first one is in the line, living in a fisheye lens caught in the camera eye, which references the following track on moving pictures, the camera eye. The second one is the line, all the world's indeed a stage and we are merely players which of course references the title of the band's first live record, All the World's a Stage, released back in 1976. And that line, actually, was borrowed from William Shakespeare's comedy play, As You Like It. Peart's lyrics for Limelight reflect his personal disdain for fame and its perceived interference with his life. Peart never did like the limelight, often avoiding fan interactions and meet and greets, Not because he didn't like his fans or appreciate the love that they showed him, but he just thought that the entire concept of fame and idolatry that one human being should worship another human being was silly. He had a saying that I really loved. The saying went, be your own hero. He never believed in having idols. The reason why he came to be recognized as one of, if not the greatest drummer in the world, was because he strove to impress himself, and he wanted simply to be his own hero by reaching his own personal potential goals. Pretty impressive individual, and sorely missed. One of Peart's finest moments, Tom Sawyer, took him two days to record, and apparently left him with raw, red, aching hands and feet, though he did recall the recording as being enjoyable work, according to him. The instrumental section in that song was developed from something that Getty Lee would fool around with on his synthesizer during sound checks of the previous tour, and he had actually forgotten about that material until someone else in the band raised the question of what should go in that instrumental section of the song. The fully instrumental YYZ for moving pictures is named after the International Air Transport Association Airport Code for Toronto Pearson International Airport. And the song's rhythm pattern is actually the Morse code of the letters YYZ. The guys in Russia are so clever when it comes to this stuff. 
the Morse code for YYZ was worked into the song's 5-4 time signature by adding eighth notes to play the dashes of the code, and the dots of the code were played using 16th notes. The idea to do the instrumental came from the experience that Rush had doing La Villa Strangiato, the instrumental from Hemispheres, named after Lee's and Peart's nickname for Alex Lifeson's tendency to share the long, drawn-out details of his dreams with them at the studio every day. They had so much fun doing La Villa Strangiato that they wanted to do another instrumental jam, but only shorter this time. On side two of Moving Pictures, there's a composition broken into two parts. It's called The Camera Eye. Part one is referred to as New York, and part two is referred to as London, unofficially. The reason why this is is because Peart wrote the lyrics after walking around both cities, and he made observations and recalled the vibe he experienced during the walks. This would be the last time that the band would record a song longer than 10 minutes, which is something they did regularly in the earlier days of the band. With respect to the name of the song, Peart got the camera eye name from a series of novels that he liked by American writer John Dos Passos. Those voices that you hear at the beginning of the song Witch Hunt were recorded outside the studio in the freezing cold. The band was fooling around out there and yelling things at each other, and it got picked up on tape. The synthesizer that you hear on Witch Hunt is actually played by the same guy who designed the cover of the Moving Pictures record, Hugh Syme. He also plays drums on one of the verses of the song. Witch Hunt is the first in a series of songs that Rush would call the Fear series. The Fear series was originally a series of three songs, one more was added later on, that focus on the idea of fear. The first three were released in reverse order. Part three was Witch Hunt. Part two would be The Weapon from Rush's next album, Signals, in 1982. And part one was The Enemy Within from 1984's Grace Under Pressure record. Later on, a part four was added. It was Freeze from the Vapor Trails record, released in 2002, seven records after Grace Under Pressure. All right, back to Moving Pictures cover designer Hugh Syme. The music on Moving Pictures is fantastic, but the stories behind how the cover was created are really, really interesting. So Hugh Syme was hired to design the cover of Moving Pictures, and he initially estimated that the artwork would cost $9,500 to produce. Rush's record label Anthem Records refused to pay that entire cost of $9,500, and so the band had to chip in and cover some of it too. And the really cool thing about the cover, in typical Rush fashion, is that it's extra cerebral. It's the, there's so many fascinating things about it. The, the cover concept is not just a double entendre, which is an idea open to two forms of interpretation. A double entendre wasn't enough for Rush. 
the cover of Moving Pictures is actually a triple entendre. So check this out. Pull up pictures of the front and back covers of the record if you can while you're listening to this. You can put me on pause if you need to. This is really cool. You need to see it if you're not familiar with the cover. Okay, so the front cover depicts movers who are carrying paintings or pictures, moving pictures. Kind of funny because we assume the phrase moving pictures is a reference to movies or motion pictures. Off to the right side, there's a small group of people standing there looking at the pictures and crying. This is because the pictures passing by are emotionally moving. They're moving pictures. Then, when you look at the back cover, you see a film crew making a motion picture of the whole scene. Moving pictures. Triple entendre. So cool. I love it. All this photography was done outside of a place called the Ontario Legislative Building at Queen's Park in Toronto, a place just east of Young and Queen, and the Eaton Centre. I've walked past it a million times without even realizing it. Now, the pictures that are being moved are Joan of Arc being burned at the stake, one of the classic dogs playing poker paintings called A Friend in Need and Russia's own Starman logo that was first featured on the back cover of the 2112 record. The film crew that you see on the back cover actually shot the scene, and a single frame from that shot was used as the record's cover photo. Now, this is cool too. Rush fans were let in on that fact many, many years later, when the band displayed the still as their backdrop during a concert using a projector, only to have the still come to life all of a sudden as a film sequence, a moving picture. And who are the people on the cover of moving pictures? Not surprisingly, there's an interesting story behind that too. A Rush biography holds that the casting was pretty simple for the cover, that Hugh Syme called on a bunch of his friends, some neighbors, and that two of the people are the parents of his hairstylist. But there may be a little bit more to it than that. Apparently one of the movers is a guy named Mike Dixon, and you will recognize him as also being on the cover of the band's next album, the live album that was put off in favor of making moving pictures, which would come to be known as Exit Stage Left. Also on the moving pictures cover is a member of Hugh Syme's design team, who assisted Syme with the covers of hemispheres, and a farewell to kings. His name is Bobby King. He's furthest to the left on the moving pictures cover. Now, King is not only just one of the movers, he's also the person in the Starman logo, as well as the man in the hat on the hemispheres cover. The woman in the Joan of Arc depiction is photographer Deborah Samuels, and her relatives are the family that you see on the right side of the Moving Pictures album cover. And lastly, the mover holding the Starman painting is a guy named Kelly J, singer of the Toronto band Crowbar, who performed a show with Rush back in 1973. One more interesting fact about the Moving Pictures record, when it was released on compact disc in 1984 by Mercury, 
the first pressings of the CD were actually missing the first beat from the opening track, Tom Sawyer. This was corrected on later releases, but if you have a copy of one of those early pressings, you should probably hang on to it. It's probably worth something. All right, that was a very detailed look at one of the greatest rock records of all time, Rush's Moving Pictures, released in one of the greatest years for rock and roll, 1981. There's still a lot of stuff to cover from that time, and I'll get to it eventually, don't worry. But for now, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury. I'm Brent Jensen. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, my website, brentjensenmusic.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Till next time. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.